Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. This is the fifth and final series, or uh, Sunday in the series, um, Growing Grace, this idea that God goes before us, that He uh, initiates, and that we respond to Him. So week one, we said that we serve a God who's speaking, and so we read our Bible and pray. Week two, we serve a God who makes us a family, and so we pursue community. Week three, we serve a God who lays down his life, and so we gladly serve. Last week, we said we serve a God who is generous, and so we joyfully give. And this week, because we serve a God who is at work, we are on mission. And so I'm going to have you, if you have a Bible, get to Genesis chapter 1. If you don't, it'll be up on the screen. I'm going to have you stand with. We're going to read. God's word together. I'm going to pray and then we will begin to unpack it. All right? Are you good? You seem a little low energy to me today. I'm just saying. Do we need to do some jumping jacks or something? Are we cool? All right. Are you happy to be here? Are you? Okay. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. right. Here we go. Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 28. Read along with me. Then God said, Let us make man in our image. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are a God who goes before us, that you are a God who initiates, that you are a God who uh, speaks, who makes us a family, who offers yourself as sacrifice, who is incredibly generous. And God, we thank you that you're at work, that you're at work in the lives of the people in this room, that you're at work in our city, that you're at work all over the world, renewing, redeeming, recreating things that we've broken. And God, we are... uh, in love with you for that. And God, we thank you for that. And God, as we look today at what it means to be on mission, I pray, God, that you would not allow this to be an intellectual ideal, but that it would be a practice, that it would be a compulsion, that it would be uh, a radical truth about Damascus Road, that we are on mission because we believe our God is at work. And so I pray, God, that you would compel our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would empower us to hear what you have to say to us and for us, and God, that we would joyfully, gratefully obey. Do what you will with us, God. We're your people. We love you, and we pray these things for your glory and our joy. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. So I've told you before that I grew up uh, in a sort of Christian home. Uh, There was some dysfunction to it, but God saved me when I was 16 years old. I had been going to... uh, a reasonably good-sized Baptist church. And when God saved me, uh, this Baptist church had in its values and its belief system that there was a certain kind of Bible that you were supposed to get, and that certain kind of Bible was very big, right? It was the one that you put on the coffee table, and it sits there, and it's decorative. And so God saved me, and then someone bought me this leather-bound Bible that I still own, that I still read. It's actually my favorite Bible, but it's very big and very ornate with margins and all that kind of stuff. It looks like it should be on a coffee table. Uh, And when 
somebody handed me this Bible for the very first time. It's one of those Bibles that if you just drop it, it kind of, you know, creates this dust blowout effect. It's very large and candidly very overwhelming. And if you just open it up and you start reading, you can kind of get lost in it. Many of you, if you're new to church, you're new to the Bible, and someone's given you a Bible and said you should start reading this, the idea of where you should start and what's going on and what's the point of this uh, can be something that can pretty quickly overwhelm and keep you from wanting to continue in it. And so today, I want to start by just explaining to you the flow of the Bible and the point of the Bible. God's point, God's desire, God's aim is singular, and it's this, that God is seeking his glory. God's seeking his glory, and what I mean by seeking his glory is that God is seeking to be known, to be worshipped, and to be enjoyed. God is seeking to be known, to be worshipped, and to be enjoyed, and if you're observing Christianity and observing church folks, I find that Many times we're good at one of those or two of those, but, but not always three. So I'll admit to you that I feel like I am growing in my knowledge of God and my worship of God, but I don't always enjoy God. I don't always enjoy God, but God is a God who is so good and so loving and so glorious that he is to be enjoyed, and God is seeking us to enjoy him, us to appreciate him, us to love him, us to worship him. And God's work throughout Scripture and throughout time has been to seek a people who glorify him. To seek a people who glorify him. To seek a people who know him. Seek a people who worship him. Seek a people who enjoy him. And that work has been a work where he has come to those people, not expected those people to come to him. And so I want to make this statement. Our God is a missionary God. He's a missionary God. Lots of times if I were to say the word missionary, and you've been around church at any level, even marginally, a missionary is somebody who comes, they have a spiel with a bad slideshow, they ask for money, they go to a city someplace or a, a people someplace that you've never heard of, they disappear for a while until they come back, they look a little bit more tired, they're asking for money again, and then they disappear for another four or five years. It's actually not what a missionary is in the Bible. A missionary is somebody who is sent, who goes for the purpose of the glory of God being on exhibit and responded to by the people that they're going to. In other words, you are a missionary. You're a missionary. You're somebody that if God has saved you, he sends you to exhibit his glory the knowledge of him, the worship of him, the enjoyment of him to those that you are in community with. You're a missionary to your neighborhood, to your workplace, to your network. That is the purpose that God has given to you, and it's the purpose that we see in Scripture. Today I read Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, and God lets us know this plan that he has for his creation. He creates everything, and he says that it's good. He says that it's good. And he creates the first man and the first woman. And what does he tell them to do? He says, I want you to be fruitful. In other words, make babies. And multiply. We don't talk about making babies on Memorial Day. Is that what's going on? <laughs> All right, my bad. Is that a Wisconsin thing? I didn't. All right. <laughs> 
Be fruitful and multiply and fill what? Fill the earth. God's plan as a missionary has never just been for the local. It's been for the entire earth. God's plan was to have sons and daughters of God created in his image, filling the entire earth so that the entire earth mimicked, pursued, exhibited what? His glory. They knew God. They worshiped God. They enjoyed God. We know in Genesis chapter 3, that Adam decided not to glorify God, but to seek his own glory. And that he took the earth down a different path. He took the earth in a different direction. But we know that God is a God who is persistent, who is loving, who is long-suffering. And so in Genesis chapter 12, God shows back up and we're introduced to a dude by the name of Abram. And God says to Abram, Abram, I know you're old. I know your wife's old. I know that you don't think that you can have any babies, but I am going to see fit to make your wife pregnant. And Abram says, come on, man. Next thing you're going to tell me is that the Cubs are going to win the World Series. Right? I'm old. I, 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 there's, there's physiological implications to this, God. And God says, I'm not only going to impregnate your wife, I'm not going to allow you to impregnate your wife, but I'm going to create a nation out of you. And that nation's going to be my people. And I'm going to be in covenant with them. And look at Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, what he says that out of this nation, all people will be blessed. All people will be blessed. Not just my people, not just the people in direct vicinity to them, all people. It mimics the language of Genesis chapter one. Fill the earth with sons of God and daughters of God. Bless all people through God's saved people. And we see as we go deeper into the Old Testament that God says in Isaiah chapter 49 that the nation of Israel is supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. Now, at the time, there was two types of people in the world. There was the nation of Israel, the Jews, and there was everybody else, and they were called the what? The Gentiles. And so God says, just like I said in Genesis 1, just like I promised to Abram, I'm saying to you that I redeemed you and set you apart so that you could be a light and a blessing, not just for you, for all people, for all people in all places and in all time. In Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse verse 14, God says that the nation of Israel was to exhibit the glory of the Lord. Where? In the whole earth. In the whole earth. That was the reason that they existed. That was the reason that God saved them, so they could glorify him and so that they could proclaim his glory to everyone, everywhere, in all time, and in all places. And we know that the nation of Israel rebelled against this idea. Like Adam, they decided to pursue their own glory, and God judged them, and nations came in and took them captive, and when they're captive, God sends them prophets, and God tells them to do what? They're in captivity in Babylon, and God says, I want you to start families, I want you to start gardens, I want you to be a blessing, I want you to be a light, I want you to show people that you're my people, even though you're in captivity. And so God's plan to bless all nations extends even to when his people are being judged and in captivity. They're in Babylon for crying out loud. And God says, listen, be a light, be a blessing, show people who I am, show people my glory. 
And over and over and over again, we see him calling his people that he saved to be a blessing to the whole earth, to fill the whole earth, to exhibit his glory to the whole earth. And they fail, and they fail, and they fail. And so the next chapter in the story is that God doesn't set apart a people. He sends his son. He sends his son. And the reason that he said his son, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that just a specific group of people, whoever, whosoever believes in him, I'm setting forth my light, my son, my glory. What does John 1 say? We beheld his glory. The glory is of the, the father. We see the glory of God in Jesus and whoever all nations filling the earth. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus cleans out the temple and he says, you've taken my temple that was supposed to be a house of prayer for who? For all nations. When you're reading through the Bible and you read the temple, you think Jewish, don't you? I do. You look at the tabernacle, that's a Jewish thing. Look at the temple, that's a Jewish thing. Not in God's plan. The temple was supposed to be a place where his presence was among his people so that all nations could come. And why is Jesus ticked off? He says, you've made it about something other than all nations and my presence and my glory. You've made it about you. You've made it about you. Jesus comes. He lives a perfect life. He dies on the cross. He raises again. He pulls his people aside and he says, I've got to tell you one thing. And what is it? Go unto all nations, make disciples, teach, make disciples, baptize unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Acts 1.8, the church has a strategic plan. That plan is you start here, neighborhoods, you go a little further, a little further, a little further, until you get to what? The uttermost parts of the earth. The uttermost parts of the earth. And God is so intent on this plan working and his promise being fulfilled that he gives the church the holy spirit to empower this work to empower this movement of mission not only in neighborhoods but to nations all nations until the whole earth is full of people after his image seeking his glory worshiping him knowing him enjoying him it's the plan of god and here's the beautiful thing about it you get to the book of revelation and at the very end, the lamb is set forth and people begin to worship him. And those people, where are they from? Where are they from? They're from all nations. People from all nations. I, I believe that this is, this is for free or not, I don't know. I believe that God's plan of when he comes back is about when the nations are reached. You see, when's God coming back? Nobody knows, okay? Anybody who tells you, well, based on the math, eh, Jesus says, I don't even know. I'm gonna go when the Father tells me to go. But I do believe that God's plan has always been for the nations. God's heart has always been for the nations. And I believe that if the nations are going to be reached, it's because somebody went to get them. What does the Bible say? How are they gonna believe if they haven't heard? And how are they going to hear if no one goes? And so the end of this great story is that in heaven, you want to talk about a melting pot. 
Let's talk about a melting pot. That's the reason that racism and prejudice is so profoundly anti-gospel. Because God's heart has always been for all people, for all nations, the earth full of worshipers of God. And God doesn't, isn't the kind of God who says, hey, you, come over here and talk to me. He goes. He goes and he sends his son because God is a missionary God. Let me explain the implications of this. And I think these are important and serious and sobering. I think that if we agree that God is a missionary God, and if we agree that on the cross, Jesus created a people who are a sent people called the church, then what that means is that the very DNA of the church is that they are on mission. That they agree with God in the desire to see all peoples redeemed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, I think that a church that isn't on mission isn't a church. It's a club. I think that a church that isn't on mission isn't a church. It's a club. It's a group of people who get together with common beliefs and generally common uh, backgrounds and, and common political beliefs. And they get together and we say, isn't it great that we're all Christians? Here's the problem. God says, I saved you to send you. I saved you to send you. And the church exists out of a sentness that if it stops believing it's sent, it stops being what God created it to be. It stops being what God created it to be. And so the question for Damascus Road East and West is how are we doing? How are we doing on mission? How are we doing in the sentness of our church? How are we doing in our heart for mission in Madison and beyond? How are we doing in our neighborhoods? Are we reaching out? Are we seeking? Are we joining our missionary God and being on mission to our city that we love and who needs a savior? I want to give you four ways today that I would like you to consider around this idea of mission. Four ways that I'd like you to, to think and to pray, to in your community groups kind of mull over of ways that I think are non-negotiable aspects of mission. In other words, if we don't do any one of these, we aren't on mission. And if we aren't on mission, we aren't doing what God calls us to be. And if we aren't doing what God calls us to be, it's just a matter of time before we're dead. Listen, a church that's not on mission is already dying. You hear what I'm saying? A church that is not on mission is already dying. It's just a matter of time. Whether we all drop dead over a period of time or just spiritually, we're just stale and and inward and gross and decaying. The church was always intended to have people coming in and people going out. And if that's not happening, it's a slow, painful death. It's a slow, painful death. So let me give you four ways. If you're taking notes, you can jot these down. The first aspect of mission that I think is non-negotiable here at Damascus Road Church is gospel mission. You're like, I knew you were going to say that. Gospel mission. Let me explain what I mean by that. Because you could think to yourself that all mission is gospel mission. I actually don't think that that's the case. I want you to think about this in a couple ways. Religion is essentially advice. It's how-to. And so we come in, and if we're portraying a religious ideal, you come in and I say, here 
is the way for you to have a better marriage, have your kids not hate you, have your finances be better, get a raise at work. How to? Advice. Not always unbiblical, and not that that's bad, because there are ways that the Bible calls us to frame our life. But religion is fundamentally advisory. The gospel is the proclamation not of what you should do, but of what has been done for you. Of what has been done for you. It is a proclaimed message of what has been done and of who did it. The gospel is I'm a sinner. Some of you don't like that idea. We mean you're a sinner. I'm a sinner and I need a savior and his name is Jesus. And he is strong enough and more than sufficient to save me and he did on a cross, sacrificed himself, sent by the father, murdered on a cross, only to rise again three days later in victory over sin and death, of which not only have I been saved, but the church was created. That's what the gospel is. And so what I mean to say by that is that a gospel that is not proclaimed is not the gospel. How many of you guys have heard the phrase that is most often allotted to Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. Yeah. Now I know what good old Frank was trying to say. But here's what he should have said. Comma, and BTW, it always needs to be preached and proclaimed. By the way, the gospel is a proclamation. It's a statement. It's verbal. It's received by hearing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The gospel is a spoken message of what has been done by Jesus for me. Now, here's what that means. It means that there are a lot of things that we do that are good and that are right and that are even holy. Things like social justice and benevolence, things like caring for the poor and suffering, things like advocating for those who don't have a voice. But John Stott would say it this way, that there's the proclamation of the gospel and there's the practices of the gospel, and they are not the same thing. And here's my concern, guys. My concern is that I think that the enemy of God will let us start all the food pantries, all the orphanages, all the groups, all the good and right practices of the gospel that we want, as long as we don't say, you're a sinner who needs a savior and his name is Jesus. I don't know if you noticed this. Nobody ever gets ticked off because you want to start an orphanage. You notice that? No one ever says, how dare you? How dare you want to help the poor? But you say, in the name of Jesus? It's a completely different dynamic. Why is that? Because the gospel is a message that needs to be proclaimed by his people. needs to be proclaimed by his people. And so my prayer is, yes, that we would, of course, do the practices of the gospel. We're starting a food pantry. We have after-school program. We're doing Celebrate Recovery. We're partnering with CareNet and with um, different organizations who are doing great, godly, holy work. But that should never replace 
the verbal proclamation of God's people in saying there is a savior, this is his name, and you need him. Do you agree? Yeah. Gospel, mission, is a proclaimed message. And so the question, of course, becomes not how many people have you helped, although you should. Not how much have you given, but who have you told? Who have you told? And if you're like me, there's something in your gut that whenever it's, hey man, could you come and serve at Celebrate Recovery? Absolutely. Hey man, could you give the gospel to your neighbor? You are. The gospel is a message that must be proclaimed must be spoken. And not only is gain for the kingdom, does gain for the kingdom occur when we speak, but persecution from the enemies of God comes when you begin to proclaim. And God has called us to stand in the midst of that. So number one is gospel mission. Number two is personal mission. It's interesting, whenever you read through the book of Acts, you don't see a time where Peter and James and John get together and say, how can we make this sucker grow? This whole church thing. I mean, we want to be a mega church, right? Let's do some marketing. Let's uh, do these programs. Let's get some people in these doors. You don't ever see that. And I'm not saying that that's wrong, okay? In fact, I want people to come in these doors. I want this room to be full. I want people to be hearing about God's word. But you do need to understand that the strategy for mission in the early church was the people of the church. That was the strategy, that wherever God's people were, mission would be occurring. In other words, we got folks who live in Stoughton. I assume that the gospel is being spoken there. That was the strategy. The strategy then was that Tim is not responsible for missional ideas is not that we get to stop short at, I go to a church that does mission work. Are you on mission? Am I on mission? And does the combination of my heart for mission and your heart for mission create a corporate context that is broken for and empowered by the Holy Spirit to see people saved in our city? But here's what I promise you. I promise you, that if I'm not on mission, and you're not on mission, it doesn't matter how we program this church, it will not be on mission. It's interesting because when you read through the book of Acts, the way that God grew his church is that the Roman government persecuted the people of God and displaced them from their home. And so they live in Stoughton, and the government comes in and says, yo, you got to move to Janesville. No, not Janesville anywhere but Janesville. <laughs> They move to Janesville, and what happens? The people of God are on mission of, with God, and a church is planted. There was no marketing strategy. There was no postcards that were sent out. Hey, by the way, the Christians are coming. There was none of that. You look at the early church, and you say, how did this church blow up in fruit that brings glory to God? Here's how. The people believed that it was their responsibility to proclaim Jesus. That's how. Whose responsibility is it 
to reach East Madison or Damascus Roads. Us? No, you. It's yours and it's mine. And whatever God does when he combines us as a church is up to him. But you cannot get away from the fact that if you live in Cottage Grove, you are sent to Cottage Grove to proclaim the grandeur of Jesus to Cottage Grove. Not I live in Cottage Grove and then I come to church at Damascus Road and we're on mission. No. Personal mission in which I take responsibility for the practices of the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel wherever God has me. And so if I live on the east side and God moves me to Fitchburg, guess what? My mission field changed. But my activity is the same. And God grows his church as he moves his people and they're on mission with him. Number three is embodied mission. Gospel mission, personal mission, and embodied mission. Acts chapter eight, we run into a guy by the name of Philip. And Philip is doing two things. He's doing miraculous works and he's preaching the gospel. And as he's doing these miraculous works and he's preaching the gospel, people are coming to know Jesus as their savior. Maybe another way that we could say it, we find in the book of James. James says, faith without works is what? Is dead. Sometimes we get hung up on this idea of miracles. Wow, I want to do that. Why did God empower Philip to do miracles? So that a platform could be created for the proclamation of the gospel. It wasn't a carnival trick. It wasn't, wow, look at that guy. It was to verify him so that his message would be heard. Faith without works is dead. Can I tell you something? We have a terrible economic system in the church around miracles. We think that miracles is pyrotechnics and whiz-bang and ooh and ah, and how could you possibly explain? You know what a miracle is? A miracle is to Lisa standing up here and saying, I was this and Jesus made me this. That's a miracle. I'm not saying that God doesn't do more than that and that there aren't things that God does that we can't explain. But the moment that we start to think that a miracle is not God changed my heart and my life, we are in big trouble. Don't come in here. Don't come in here. I'm, I'm setting you up for the Holy Spirit thing. Don't come in here saying, where's all the... There it is. That's it. If God wants to do more than that, fine. But God will not do less than that. Why did God change Talisa's life? For his glory and to send her. And her changed life creates a platform for her proclamation of the gospel. The miracle verifies the speaker, which verifies the message. When, when <laughs> the things that God has done in my life, now, now let me be clear with you, um, he's got a long way to go. <laughs> he's got a long way to go. Good Lord, it's long, right? I'm, I'm a hot mess in many ways. And anything that is good in me, God put in me. And what is good that he put in me, he put in me for his glory, and so that I could say, he did this to somebody else. 
It's the reason that he did it. My boy, Frank of Assisi, he was right. What he was trying to say was, don't let your life and your words be separate. And the testimony of Scripture is, somebody who is centered on the personal work of Jesus, as God changes them, it will empower their proclamation. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, it will verify, the miraculous will verify the message, and God will use both for his glory. That's what an embodied life is. It doesn't, it isn't something to hide behind, right? No, I've never proclaimed, but I served that. No, it's to take the miraculous and put it on display for people to say, something's up with that. Something's up with that. Gospel mission, personal mission, embodied mission, and then lastly is sacrificial mission. Are you with me? Okay. A couple weeks ago, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 19, where Paul says, even though I'm free, I make myself a servant to all men that I might by all means win some. This idea of Paul saying, even though I'm free, I'm willing to serve so that I might see God save some people. Now, we look at that idea, and under the Jews, I became a Jew, Gentile, I was Gentile, all that. We go, wow, that's, that's really good. Do you know what's inherent in all of that? Loss. Loss. Paul says, I have all this, but I'm willing to give that that I might get them. The way that God has most specifically grown his people, his church, is through loss. And through people who believed that the value of God was greater than the value of their freedom or their stuff. I don't want to be melodramatic about this. I do think that when you look at the news, that the way that our culture is trending is that persecution towards Christians abroad and at some point locally will become more severe. That's not necessarily what I'm trying to communicate to you. I am saying, what are you willing to lose to gain your neighbor in Christ? Your time, convenience, comfort, your schedule. I don't have time to be talking with them. I got stuff to do. They don't do this or act like this or sound like this? What am I willing to lose to be on mission? Damascus Road, what are you willing to lose to reach Madison? What does Paul say? Paul says, I'm willing to lose my very freedom that I might win. What? Some. Not all. I'll give all my freedom to get a couple. If we're a group of people who understand that we serve a missionary God, who understand that our God is glorious, who understand that our God is not willing that any should perish, then we should go to any length, be willing to lose anything that we might see some saved. There is not a testimony in scripture 
of it always being good, always being celebratory, always being loud and happy and joyful. And in the midst of that, lots of people coming to faith. There is countless testimonies in scripture and throughout the history of the church of God's people laboring and losing and God blessing in spite of. And so I would offer that you should not care who the governor is, who the politician is, what's in the newspaper, what you might lose, what might be said about you, but that rather you should instead be willing to lose every freedom that we have in this country based on freedom if God would see fit to use it to save some. And that we ought to stop bickering over inane politics and missing the point here at Damascus Road. If God sees fit to take every freedom that we have but uses it to glorify his name, that should be a very acceptable reality in our hearts and minds. God says this, you are a people who should go. You should decide to go, but you are a people who are sent. And here's the thing about God. God never sends anyone without empowering them to do what he sent them to do. This is, this is the, the lie of the enemy. I don't know how to do that, Tim. God says that he empowers, enables, and gifts every single one of you for mission. Every single one of you. You have everything that you need to invest in, love on, and pray for your friends, family, and neighborhood. God says, I send you and I empower you. Will you go? Will you go? Will you join my work of mission in my people throughout history so that in the kingdom, every nation is there? So that in the kingdom, every nation is there. Here's what I'd like you to do. This week, we're finishing our, our study. You're going to finish your Bible reading plan. You're going to look at some text on mission. But here's what I've noticed. Let me, let me frame this up as a question and think about it. Do you believe that God is at work in Madison? Are you sure? Do you believe that the work that he, not, listen, not that he wants to do, because God is not inhibited, that the work that he is doing is miraculous, profound, beautiful, in saving people and drawing them to himself. Okay. I admit that I set you up a little bit. Um, do you see that every day? Here's my answer. I don't. I believe it theologically, but I don't experience it in my life. And so here's what I'm left with. I'm left with that I believe that God is going to do what he says and that he is doing what he said he would do, but that I sometimes don't have eyes to see or ears to hear it. 
Oh, let me check my schedule. Oh, I got an email. Oh, let me send a text. Oh, man, it's a busy day. Hey, man, why are you driving so crazy? Radio's on, phone, not texting, because that would be illegal. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. You're reading this week. You're considering this week. I'm going to ask you to each and every day that you wake up this week, say, God, help me to see where you're at work. Help me to see it. Help me to hear it. Help me to see it. And then empower me to join you at whatever level you'd call me to. For some, that's going to be a smile and a handshake. For some, that's going to be you're going to have to open your mouth or your wallet or change your schedule. But I'm going to ask you to just say to God, I believe you're on mission. I believe you're powerful. I believe you have a desire and a heart to reach Madison. Let me see it. Let me see it and then empower me to join you. And it just might be, just might be that something miraculous would happen. It just might be that God might save someone right in front of you. And it just might be that if that happens enough times, our city might start to look a little different. Amen? All right, stand with me. Handful of ways that I'd like you to respond. We're going to sing together. We're going to sing together because we serve a God who came to us because he's glorious. We're going to take communion together. We're going to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made. And we're going to pray together. We're going to have some people in the back. If you'd like prayer, if you want to start praying what I asked you right now, you can go back and there are some folks who will pray with you. But we want to respond to what God says. So pray with me and then we'll take communion and we'll sing. Heavenly Father, I thank you today that when I was a sinner far from you, you came and saved me. God, I know for an absolute fact that if I had had to come and find you, I would still be lost in my sin. And I know that you saved me. And God, that truth breaks my heart because I know that in coming to me, you then sent me to others. And God, I want to be a part of those all nations when your kingdom comes. And I want those all nations to start in my neighborhood and in my city and in my state. And God, when I stand before you, I want to have been a part of a church who was broken and poured out for the mission of God, the Missio Dei, who counted it all as loss for the gain of seeing your redemptive work in this time and place. So God, we trust you. We trust you as people who have been saved by you. We trust you to be at work. And we trust you, God, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear it. And we trust, God, that as we see, you will enlarge in our hearts. You will empower our spirits to open our mouths so that the name of Jesus might be proclaimed to a city that needs a Savior. Do that, God, for our glory and for your glory and our joy. In the name of Jesus, amen.